Patty, mm-hmm. you and I spend a fair amount of time talking to each other. That is correct. We talk on the phone because we are friends. And we also talk a lot while working <laughs> on this show. And there's one word I've noticed you use a lot. Yeah. Ooh, cake. Mustache. You do use the word mustache a lot. Uh, of course I do. It's a majestic creature. It's like a, um, a unicorn or a sunbathing Tom Selleck or something. <laughs> so anyway, I was thinking. Ooh, is it pervicacious? Okay, you have never used provocations with me, not once. <laughs> well, I am going to start. Uh, <clears throat> I have word of the day toilet paper right now, and it is very helpful in more ways than one. I can't ever unknow that, but <laughs> I was thinking of identifier. Oh, yes, I do. I do use that a lot. Why do you like that word so much? I always start our interviews with the question, what are your chief identifiers? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. And actually, just side note, listeners, that never makes it into the show. Right. Um, but also, Patty, we, you, when you and I are talking, I just I hear you throw that out pretty regularly. Well, OK, so that uh, identifier or that question, it reminds people of who they are. And I think it more, most specifically, it quickly lets me know who they think they are or how they see themselves in the world. And actually, it's funny that you should bring this up because I've been thinking a lot about that lately. What do you mean? Like, okay, culturally, that word is everywhere. What? Identifier? Uh, Identity, I would say. Because, okay, so there's this little thing called the midterm election that's coming up. So the word identity is everywhere. You just cannot read or watch or stream the news without hearing about identity politics. And I'm going to give you a little uh, look behind the curtain right now. I'm going to be very open and honest with you. I kind of think that I know what that is, but I kind of think I don't. And I'm, I don't like admitting that because I kind of feel like it makes me seem like an idiot <laughs> or a big dumb dummy. It's a pretty big topic. Right. But broadly speaking, uh-huh. it it refers to when people take political stances based on parts of what's called lived experience. So these are things that you experience firsthand and are intimately familiar with. Mm-hmm. So they're like things related to race, religion, uh, socioeconomic okay. status, sexuality, right. et cetera, right. et cetera. Yeah. So basically, it's what it sounds like. It's taking an aspect of your identity, and then you expand or you apply that to your political position Mm -hmm. uh, to the point where it kind of directs how you vote. Okay, so this is the confusing thing, because I think that that's, isn't that kind of limiting? Especially when you consider all of our identifiers, you know? Mm. Like, yes, okay, my chief identifier, I am a skier. So it would seem almost obvious that, you know, I would vote for, Um, someone protecting wild places or someone who is like, hey, science is actually a real thing. Climate change is real, you know? (laughs) But I'm also Chicago Irish and I love donuts, right? So, But I'm not going to vote for Seamus O'Toole because he's got a pocket full of crawlers. All right, well. (laughs) Pocket of crawlers. um, Seriously, though, if we get back to the point about you seeing this in the news today, it's actually a lot more specific and contentious in that. The right often accuses the left actually of appealing to voters based on identity politics. Uh-huh. Uh, and that's partly because identity politics did grow out of the, the social movements in the 60s, and they were meant to empower groups that had previously been marginalized. But white nationalism is a form of identity politics. And today, some political scholars are saying actually that to create unity, we have to move away from these narrower identities and start 
banding together based on broader interests. Okay. And the idea is that it will make us more inclusive. Okay, that that's the that's the thing that's really been on my mind. Specifically, how can we align ourselves based on our identities when there's a bajillion things that go into making up who someone actually is? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then what about those identifiers that maybe don't sing in harmony? And I was thinking about all these things when I was speaking with Bam Mendiola. He's a mountaineer. He's a first-generation Mexican-American. He's a super outspoken member of the LGBTQ community. There are just so many, many things that make up Bam's identity. And some parts he draws from his past. They hearken to traditions passed on to him. But he's definitely his own man solidifying his own way in the world. And that's why his belief was just so surprising to me. I believe I am my ancestor's wildest dream. Why does Bam think that? And what does he mean by wildest dream? Stay tuned. I'm Patty O'Connell. And I'm Elizabeth Nakanu. Welcome to Safety Third, a show about ideas and how we come to believe in them. Anytime you nail it in this interview, Patty, I just want you to do a little hair flip. <laughs> I should do that with my mustache. I should like uh, I should be able to flip like hair flip my mustache. No, just do it with your hair. So I think people with short hair have the yeah. greatest hair flips because we don't have real hair to flip, so it's easier. <laughs> so we have like this phantom hair that we can okay, flip. I'm doing it right now. I'm a little dizzy and my neck hurts a little bit, but I think I'm doing it right. No, you have to do it after you nail it. You haven't nailed it yet. I haven't nailed it yet? <laughs> Not yet. Ah, I know shit. it's coming, but when you have a moment, okay. <laughs> when okay. you have a moment, you have to just, and we'll all know that the moment is the moment Okay. when it comes. You just do a hair Perfect. flip and we'll know. All right, so where, where did you grow up? Tell me a little bit about your childhood. I was born in Los Angeles um, in the valley. My parents moved to Los Angeles to find work as migrant workers. My mother and father had no money and they rented out a basement of a house occupied by many other migrant laborers. The only thing my mother and my father could afford was the basement that didn't have carpet. So they rolled up a few blankets on the cement and that's where they slept and that's That's where she slept throughout her entire pregnancy, and she worked until the day that she had me. And um, our trajectory, and my parents' trajectory in particular, was informed by where they could find work. And this is very common for a lot of migrant laborers. They move to the United States, and they, they, they oftentimes move with the crops, and they move and they follow agricultural labor, which is what my parents did. Bam's childhood was a life in flux. His family stayed in California until they found more stable employment as farm workers in Washington in 1989. Bam was one when his family moved to Yakima. His parents picked apples there, and his father got an additional job that took him even farther north. So my father was an Alaskan fisherman, and he was gone six months out of the the year. And some of my most vivid memories are of my father knocking on the door. And of course, I didn't know it was him, but the minute... I opened the door and I saw my father, all of his children would climb up on his shoulders Mm -hmm. and we would hug him and kiss him and tell my father how much we missed him. Um, 
my connection to nature through the lens of my father's lived experience was that nature was an ocean. Nature was a sea that you spent six months out of the year fishing Uh on. And I drew an association between nature and my father working on a boat as a fisherman, working all day and all night to, to support my family. When my mother would come home, my mother picked apples. Yeah. And she'd spend all day under the scorching sun picking apples to provide for her family. While my mother did this, I would see her hands and how callous my mother's hands were. I would see the red on my mother's face from the sunburn. My father did not choose to be on an ocean risking his life every day. Mm -hmm. My mother did not choose to spend all day under the sun picking apples and carrying them on her back. Mm -hmm. That's what I knew about nature as, as an immigrant's child. But I did know that nature was a sacrifice. Since then, I've learned that my father was the ultimate backpacker. My father crossed the border illegally and spent... Um, several nights in the Sonoran Desert, my father crossed a river. My father is a swimmer. My father is a strong backpacker because his life and his family's life depended on it. Um, So I've been able to reclaim the term outdoorsy since I've come into my own as as a hiker, as a backpacker, as a climber. We're all spending time in nature, but the narrative is very exclusive and it's informed by privilege it's informed by money it's informed by access to resources and my parents had none of those things well i've heard you say that that growing up as a as a child of mexican immigrants you felt this burden what does that mean to you patty what being a child of an immigrant meant to me was a responsibility um I saw, I saw how exhausted my mother was. I saw the sacrifices my father made, and I internalized that sacrifice. Um, when I was a child, I knew that I had to be something great. I felt responsible to grow up and do the things that would make my mother proud. And I knew that school was very important to my mother, like many other immigrant families. And I knew that school was so important to my mom. So I became a 4.0 student. I became a leader. I started many clubs. I received um, several hundred thousand dollars in scholarships for college. I was student of the year. I was that guy Mm -hmm. that wore a suit and tie to a public high school. A public high school in rural America, Patty. I was that guy. No one told me that I was weird, but I look back and I was probably a little weird showing up to a public rural high school in a full suit and tie, but I knew it would make my mother proud. Was it hard to fit your briefcase in your locker? (laughs) I fit it under my wig. You know this phantom wig that I do my hair flips with? I I just fit it right up in there. Bam was succeeding outwardly in all the ways his parents wanted. But those achievements, his desire to please his parents, and the weight of that responsibility were also a way for him to protect himself. Because Bam was struggling with something he knew his parents wouldn't be happy about. When my parents moved to Yakima, we, 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 they, they finally bought a house. They sacrificed a lot to buy a house. This house that they bought only had one locking bedroom, and it was my parents' bedroom. And I remember when we would get the Sunday paper, um, you would flip through the paper, and of course there's a lot of color advertisements for stores. And I remember there was one particular advertisement 
for a store and I would make sure that my parents were not home and I would take the Sunday paper. I was small enough, this is how small I was, I was small enough to fit under the bed and I would crawl and squeeze under the bed and I would take this newspaper and I would bring a flashlight and in the dark I would look at this this magazine, this, this advertisement for a big box store, and I would always flip to the underwear section because they would always have, um, you know, a man and a woman selling underwear and wearing nothing but the underwear that they were selling. So I was a young child, and I had this curiosity with, the, with these images of of uh of men wearing underwear and of course you know you're you're so young that your sexuality is not developed but um i i understood that i enjoyed looking at at certain men and i understood above all else that this was supposed to be a secret that i had to do it in the dark that i had to bring a flashlight and that i had to lock the door behind me so that nobody knew and so where did that sense of like okay, this needs to be secret. I, I need to hide this. Like, do you, do you remember why you felt like that? Was it something that your parents said or, or something you heard in the community? Or were you just like, I, I don't know why, but this is wrong, but I'm still going to do it anyways. You know, Patty, I wish there was, I wish there was one event that that gave me the sense that being gay is wrong because it would just be a singular event. Unfortunately right. for oppressed people and marginalized communities, it's not just one event that, that I can pinpoint and say, this is when I knew being gay um, was supposed to be a secret. This is when I knew being gay was quote unquote wrong. It's literally a lifetime of microaggressions, a lifetime of, of lack of representation, a lifetime of small comments made, a lifetime of assumptions. You know, mm -hmm. my parents, my grandparents, I would go to Mexico every summer. And the first thing my parent, my grand, my grandfather in particular would ask me, um, he would say, Brian, because my name before I legally changed it was Brian. He would say, Brian, um, ya tienes una novia allá en América, which is, Brian, do you have a girlfriend already in America? Um, and I grew up religious as well. I grew up going to church every Sunday and uh -huh. um, learning that homosexuality is a sin. I'd grown up in that church, and I remember every Sunday I would pray to God that he would make me straight. So from cultural, um, political, financial institutions, I was being conditioned from a very young age to repress a very large part of my life. Can, can you take me through the events of coming out to your family? Um, I was 17. And I remember um, I had this friend in, that I had met in the community and he was another gay guy, and he was also in the closet. So it was one of the very first gay friends I ever had. I did not know gay people existed, Patty. I grew up thinking I was the only gay person in the entire world. I did not know gay people existed. I'd never heard of real gay people. I'd never seen a real openly gay person in my entire life in the media or in my personal lived experience. I really for many, many years thought I was the only single person questioning my sexuality and hating it. Uh. And um, I met someone else. And for the very first time, it was like looking in a mirror. 
Um, seeing myself reflected in another person is so powerful because it brings validation to your very existence. For the very first time when I started um, building solidarity with the local queer community in Yakima, I felt seen, I felt heard in a way that I'd never realized that I was missing my entire life. So I had this relationship with my mother in particular where I just wanted to make her proud. I think most of us grew up with this this um, underlying desire to make our parents proud, right? And mm -hmm. that for me was multiplied being a, ch a child of an immigrant. Um, so you have to understand that when I came out, I knew I knew I would be breaking the heart of the very person I wanted to make proud. I knew I would bring shame to the, w the one single person on this planet that I wanted to make proud. Oh. I knew I would bring shame to her. I knew I would break my mother's heart. I remember my best friend, um, Erica, she would, she would come over to my house and slip her cell phone um, through my window so that I could talk to my gay friends on the phone because I couldn't talk to my gay friends on the landline because my mom could pick up the other phone and hear that I was talking to another gay person. You know, I'd say, hey, we're hanging out. I'm hanging out with my friend Erica. Mm -hmm. um, and, I'm, and I'm sure they thought I was dating her. So they were like, yeah, go on right ahead. Um, and, you know, Erica and I would, would then go and hang out with our, our, our other queer friends. And so um, there was one particular night that I decided to hang out with, with my friend and I decided to stay out late, which I had never in my entire life done. I'd always come home early. I yeah. always studied. I was always in my, in my room reading books and writing. Um, this particular night I stayed out. And it would, and it, and it was the first and and only time that I'd stayed out, and I knew that that would um, cause suspicion in my in my parents because I'd never done that before. So um, my friend and I we stayed out really late, and he was a little bit older than me, so he drove. And I remember he had this white Xterra, and I remember we just drove in his white Xterra around and around town, as if I knew my life was going to end that night. And I did not want to get out of his white Xterra, but the time came that he had to drop me off. Hmm. And I decided that night with my friend that I was going to come out to my family. And as a teenager, I realized that the only relationship I'm ever going to have that's going to last my lifetime is, is me, is the relationship that I have with myself. And I realized that every day I was, I was keeping my mother's heart from breaking, I was breaking my own. And I realized that I was, I realized that I was, I was doing so much for this relationship that I had with my mother that for my entire life I'd ignored my own, my own dreams, my own imagination because I was so committed to making my mother proud. I, I forgot what would make me proud. I forgot what would bring me joy. Um, what I was not prepared for, though, Patty, was my parents were waiting for me on the front steps. Um, they were so concerned and worried about me that they were waiting on the patio for me. And so I remember I opened the door um, to get out of the car and the, the overhead lamp came on. And I remember being so aware that my parents would see me coming out of a car with that was uh, with another with another man. And I was so self-conscious about that. I remember walking towards the door and my parents asking me where I had been, what had happened, if I was okay. And I remember going into my bedroom 
I remember crawling into my bed and putting my face down into a pillow and bawling. And at this point, my parents had no clue what was happening. Um, mm-hmm. My parents yeah. hovered over me and just kept asking me, Brian, ¿qué te pasa? ¿Qué te pasa? Brian, what's going on? What's wrong? They were concerned something was wrong with my health. And I remember crying into my pillow, Patty, and I, I couldn't say the words. They were so heavy on my tongue, I couldn't say the words. I could not say the words, I'm gay. I couldn't say it. It was as if my whole body had frozen Mm-hmm. And two simple words juxtaposed together should have been so easy to say, but I'd been told my whole life that those are two words I should never say oh, out loud wow. to someone else. Um, I remember I finally told my mom, and I whispered, soy gay, and she didn't hear me, so she made me repeat myself, which was harder the second time and I had to say it louder for both of my parents Mm. to hear and in between sobs I told my parents that I was gay and I remember my mom screaming remember my dad's face he had this sulken look to him he was pale and my father didn't say a word which was worse my mother's my mother was crying. I remember my mom telling me that, that I'd been brainwashed, that of course I wasn't gay. My mom said that the internet had made me gay. My father said my friends had, had convinced me that I was gay, but that I wasn't actually gay. Um, my father, Patty, offered to take me to a sex worker, a female sex worker, and I remember him saying to me, you know, if you have sex with a woman, you'll know that you're not gay. Um, I remember my mom telling me that the first thing I would do would, would be to go to therapy. Um, I remember my, my mother telling me that I could pray away the gay, which I actually had been doing my whole life up until that day. And I remember my mom saying to me that night that she'd rather I be a murderer than be gay. She said, I would rather you be anybody than be gay. She said, this is the, the single worst thing you could have ever told me. They told me that I would bring shame to my family's name. Um, they forbid me, Patty, from telling my younger brother. I have a, I have a younger brother that lived in the house and a, and a younger sister that lived in the house. And she, she said to me verbatim, she said, your brother's mind is too young to be poisoned. She said, you'll damage your brother for life if he finds out that he has a gay older brother. You'll ruin him. So for many years, I couldn't even come out to my own brother, and he lived in the same house. Mm -hmm. So that night really marked a shift in my development, in my relationship with myself, and that was the night that I decided that above all else, I was going to honor honor the relationship I have with myself. Above all else, I was going to be true. I was not going to be ashamed. I was going to live my life the way I wanted to live my life. After the break, Bam takes that life and tries on a new identity. Once he had fully embraced his sexuality, Bam began his process of reinvention at college in Walla Walla. That's when he started going by Bam instead of his legal name, Brian. He was running to be a student body president, and he put his initials B-A-M on all his posters. Bam! 
It really pops, doesn't it? It does. And he liked the way Bam sounded so much, he decided to stick with it. College is where Bam began to find his home in the LGBTQ community. He describes it as his chosen family, since he felt that he'd lost his biological one. But in 2009, when Bam was 21 and a senior in college, he wanted to call home. Plain and simple, he missed his mom. They began the lengthy healing process, which, according to Bam, is still a work in progress. What has helped Bam immensely are patience, humility, and grace. Characteristics he says were strengthened when he began to re-examine his relationship with the outdoors. My generation is very divorced from nature as a result of, of colonization. My indigenous ancestors, like many indigenous mm-hmm. communities and cultures, had a really rich level of nature connection. And um, after colonization, that was something that was taken away from my ancestors and their relationship with nature changed. Mm-hmm. I went outdoors to reclaim uh, that, uh, that gift. And I went outdoors um, to reclaim that space for myself and for other queer people, for other people of color. Can you describe your first climbing experience and what stood out to you and what captured you? I was captured by fear, to be honest with you, and loneliness. I was very lonely. I had no idea how lonely I would feel. I remember being so afraid of not, of not feeling seen, of not feeling heard, of, uh, of, and you know what's really important for me to say, Patty, is, is that marginalized people, oppressed people, whenever we make mistakes, whenever we have shortcomings, whenever we do something wrong, Our mistakes, our shortcomings always get associated to our identities of oppression. So let me tell you what I mean by that. When I'm a a Latino climber and I make a mistake, it's in the the subconscious or conscious mind of people, um, there's stereotypes that are playing into like, oh, you know, well, Latinos aren't that educated. So of course, you know, you know, Latino climbers are not going to be the most competent. I hear a lot of a lot of mm. women that I climb with as well that say that echo the sentiment, which is I have to be twice as good, twice as fast, twice as perfect, because if I mess up, it falls back on my community. If a woman messes up, it's because she's a woman. If a Latino messes up, it's because he or she is Latino. If a black person makes a mistake, it's because they are black. If a poor person does something wrong, it's because they're Mm. poor. But let me tell you, as a man in the outdoors, when I'm climbing, my mistake is never because I'm a man. It never gets associated Mm -hmm. back to my identities of privilege and power. As a cisgender person, it's never because I'm cisgender. Um, as a person with access to resources, it's never, my mistakes are never associated with my access to resources. But I know consciously and subconsciously that everything I do, um, if I'm slow, if I make a mistake, if I make the wrong turn, that that mistake will be associated and will cost my community. So that when the next queer climber comes along, when the next brown or black climber comes along, people are, uh, have already made up their mind that there's this positive association between these shortcomings and someone's oppressed identities. Um, so it's really important for me to say that because I, that's, that's, that's what I worried about the night before the climb. There are a couple remarkable things here. One, Bam's trajectory as a mountaineer is incredible. He started out with pretty accessible hikes on Cougar Mountain, Rattlesnake Ledge, and Granite Mountain outside of Seattle. 
He then almost immediately set his sights on summoning Pacific Northwest volcanoes. We're talking about glaciated mountains here with bad weather and tricky technical terrain. And two, for Bam, mountaineering is more than a physical challenge. He climbs mountains to help topple homophobia, racism, body image. These are things he felt kept people excluded from the outdoor community. Bam unfurls a flag on every summit he climbs. It's black and purple, and it reads Backwoods Barbie. That's the moniker he created for himself in 2014. He wanted to create visibility for the LGBTQ community within the outdoor community. In March of 2018, Bam wrote a feature for Mountaineer magazine, and a photo of him atop Mount Rainier with the flag in hand appeared on the cover. Yeah, so I had an article come out in Mountaineer magazine. Um, I also had a a video, a, a, do, a small documentary that was filmed about my experiences by NBC that's on YouTube. Um, and I had a lot of comments on both of those platforms, people sending me messages, emails, um, and a lot of them were women saying, I might not be a person of color, I might not be a member of the queer community, but as a woman, I know exactly what that pressure feels like. And when I started climbing with women, I started hearing these stories of people making assumptions about mm-hmm. women um, as climbers. I remember um, I had a very similar experience with this one person who reached out to me. And um, I had, you know, I had shared this story at some point. Um, after I'd climbed the five major stratovolcanoes of what's now known as Washington, um, I remember I had this message that was sent to me, and the message said, hey, I think your climbing is really cool. I think you're rad. I, I might want to do the same thing, too. You're an inspiration. I want to know what, what climbing guide you used, what service you used to climb all these mountains. And the underlying assumption there um, in this microaggression was that hmm. that I could not have climbed these mountains without having paid someone to take me up there. So the assumption is that if you are a woman, if you're a person of color, if you're a member of a marginalized class, you are not um, able to do these things on your own. And as I've been learning about the, the barriers that other communities face mm-hmm. that I um, have privilege and that that privilege keeps me insulated from these experiences as I'm learning about the experiences that, that some other communities are having. Um, it's important for me to use the privilege, to use the platform that I do have to bring light to that. I know many of my cohorts, many of many leaders that I have befriended, many people in my circles that are women, trans women, femmes, when they speak out and they're bold, they're dismissed, they're called words, um, their leadership is questioned. My leadership is supported and promoted as a male. Um, so it's really important for me to acknowledge that I do benefit from many unearned privileges because I did not choose to be born a male in a, in a society that benefits and rewards and protects men. I did not choose um, to, to speak English in a country that benefits and protects people that speak English, etc. I didn't choose these identities, and I also, more importantly, did not earn them. But ultimately, when we come into a space, when any of us traverse through a space, we're coming into that space with both privilege and oppression. You said that your ancestors, you believe your ancestors are your parents, but 
is there more to that too? Are are you are you include or who do who else do you include in that? So I consider my ancestors to be all the people whose shoulders I stand on. That includes my mother and my father. That includes my grandfather who worked in a guava field in Michoacan, Mexico. That includes my indigenous ancestors that lived in. Mexico before Mexico was called what it is now. Mm -hmm. I also believe that my ancestors are members of the more than human world. More than human world is um, the community of life on this planet that is not human. Before humans existed, of course, there were plants and animals. And if they were here before us, how are these members of the more than human world not just as much as our ancestors as our matrilineage and our patrilineage? It's really important for me to acknowledge um, the shoulders that I stand on. One time after I finished climbing Tahoma, which is also known as Mount Rainier, I called my mother to let her know I was okay. And she said to me, she said, son, whenever you climb a mountain, I feel like I climbed that mountain with you. Wow. She said, everything that you accomplish in life, I accomplish it right next to you. Whatever you do, it's as if you were doing it for two. So as I traverse life, dreaming and creating space, it's really important for me to acknowledge the sacrifices of those that came before me. Mm-hmm. And acknowledge that without those sacrifices, I wouldn't be um, accepting the privileges that I am today. Wow, that's a, what a beautiful thing for your mom to say. That is hair flip, <laughs> hair flip right now. Hair flip for my yeah. mom. Hair flip for my mom. Yeah. So let me ask you this: with all the things that you identify with and identify as, tell me how and why you are your ancestors' wildest dream. I imagine my ancestors would have wanted me to have the freedom of choice. My parents, my grandparents, I come from a long line of agricultural laborers, and I can only imagine that it was their wildest dream for their their descendants, emerging elders, to continue to survive. Above and beyond survival, the sacrifice that my mother and my father made allowed me to have the freedom of choice. My mother and father never had a choice. They had to work. If they wanted to give their family a better chance, they had to move to the United States. Because of their sacrifices, because I stand on their shoulders, I now have a life where I can imagine whatever I want and have the ability to dream it and make it and will it into reality. I have the ability to climb some of the tallest peaks in the United States. I have the ability to go backpacking for pleasure. I have the ability to start my own company and do consulting work. I literally have the resources to do whatever I want, to dream whatever I want to dream because that dream was given to me by my ancestors. I've got something for you. I grew up just outside of Chicago in an upper middle class family. I am a straight white man with a big old mustache, it is very clear to me, it is not lost on me, that I am the straight, furry-faced white guy on top of the mountain that we way too often see in outdoor media. But I am also not a completely closed-minded dickalope. You know, I acknowledge my privilege in American society. I I definitely acknowledge uh, my privilege within our outdoor community. 
And I want to know what I can do or a person like me can do to help change this outdoor culture that I, that we care so deeply about and help people just like you be their ancestors' wildest dreams. What what can I do? What can we do? So I believe in co-liberation first and foremost. Um, so that's how I like to frame the conversation that our liberation is tied to each other um, because Talking about it in any other way really fans like white, the white savior complex mm-hmm. of like, what can I do to help you? And I think that that's, um, I think the intent to that is is usually very good, but the impact of that, the assumption of that is what can I do to help you? The way I mm-hmm. see it is what can I do that'll liberate both of us? What can I do that will help you recognizing that anything that helps you absolutely and unequivocally helps me too. So I like to see um, that relationship as a duality of of co-liberation. Another thing that I think is really important, Patty, um, with with people that have privilege, myself included, is to is to take up less space. And I say we because I'm speaking as a man. We take up a lot of space. Men take up a lot of space. White people take up a lot of space. Cisgender people take a lot, a lot of space. People with privilege take up a lot of emotional space. So I, I, um, I navigate a lot of conversations with a lot of different people, right, about these topics. And sometimes when you bring, when you bring awareness to someone's privilege, um, oftentimes people's first reaction is to get defensive. And what we end up doing in that defensiveness, Mm -hmm. we take up a lot of space that should have been um, created and held for the marginalized person. And I believe now as as an emerging elder, it's my job as an emerging elder to create space for the next generation of leaders, the next generation of climbers, of backpackers, of hikers, especially those of color, especially those of the queer community. It's my job to make sure that someday someone is living my wildest dreams. My wildest dreams are a life without oppression. My wildest dream is the ability for a child to dream without barriers, without the systemic oppression. And the work that I'm doing now, the emotional labor that I'm doing every time I talk about my trauma, every time I talk about my resilience, every time I talk about the traumatic things that have happened to me as a queer person of color, that's emotional labor. That's my sacrifice as an ancestor. And I want to be a good ancestor to the next generation of leaders so that they're able to live my wildest dreams the way I'm living the wildest dreams of my ancestors. You've been listening to Safety Third. Our guest today was Bam Mendiola. To learn more about what he's doing, check out his Instagram at my name is Bam. If you like today's show, please spread the word. Safety Third is like deep dish pizza. More is always better. So tell your friends about the show. Hell, chat up some strangers even. Don't be shy, friends. You can find us on Instagram at safety third underscore podcast and on the old interwebs at safetythirdpodcast.com. Safety Third is produced by Elizabeth Nakano. Alex Park edited this episode. Additional production help from Eilish O'Neill. Music by my brother, yes, my brother Brendan. My glasses! O'Connell. Art direction by Anya Miller-Berg. Fitz Cahal is our creative director. Becca Cahal is our executive producer. And I'm your host, Patty O'Connell. 
Okie dokie, my friends. Until next time, keep it tight, keep it loose, and remember, safety third. <laughs>